This is Geek 4, a podcast about fans, fandom, and fan culture. I'm Dr. Michael Boyce. Everyone likes something, but what are you a geek for? Kev Moore is a UK-based musician and podcaster. He co-hosts the Film Guff podcast, which offers lowbrow talk about low-rent movies, and Here Lies Amicus, which explores the work of the decidedly low-rent British horror studio, Amicus Productions. His love of movies, particularly the underfunded and underappreciated, is infectious, and I'm very much looking forward to talking to him today about his love of the schlocky and not-so-schlocky discount British horror films. Kev, welcome to Geek 4. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad to be here as well. Thank you. <laughs> now, on your podcasts, you look at some pretty bizarre and very low-rent <laughs> movies. Yes. <laughs> Where does this fascination with, with low-rent British horror film come from? I don't know. I, I think it's because it's what I was raised on, because that was what, all that was aired on TV at the time. There was a season that started on ITV in the Yorkshire region in 1976. Um, can't remember what it's called, but they did do every Saturday night they would show two uh, horror movies. Sometimes it'd be sci-fi, sometimes it'd be a horror following it. Now, I was always sort of edging my dad into showing me these films. And um, he was always a bit hesitant and it thought well you know he's seven year old yeah well how bad can it be now so started off with um it came from outer space which is fine 50s sci-fi horror i'm thinking this is fine i can take it down i can take it it's fine and then following it up was the haunting from 1963 absolutely crying my eyes out terrified but it was that that hooked me because it's just the thrill of being absolutely terrified even though you know you're in completely safe surroundings and, you know, you know that everything's fine. It's just that leaving that thought in your head. And that's just what really hooked me and <laughs> been after him ever since. And that's an amazing film. The Haunting is an exceptionally well yes. movie. Yeah. So you're enticed by the, the thrill of the scare. Um, yes. And that that takes you into some interesting into, into some <laughs> interesting films. Like, you know, I've watched along with some of the Amicus stuff, and uh, some of them are quite atmospheric and and terrifying, and some of them are quite cheesy. And uh, so, how how are you how are you discerning what you're watching next? Like, is it just whatever you can get your hands on? Pretty much, with the Amicus stuff being so hard to get hold of the most of the time, um, it's only over this last year that they've made the Psychopath available, for instance. That's mm -hmm. long been gone. Um, it's a bl only on Blu-ray in the States as well. It's only on Kino Loba. Um, so it's always a case of trying to grab what you can. Now, there's a film that um, it's become like the Holy Grail. It's called What Became of Jack and Jill. And that's never had a physical release at all. It was from 1972, but it was a hangover from 1969. Um, they shelved it and then threw it out as part of a double bill because they had nothing else to pour out. And it's just one of those that's never surfaced. So that's mm. going to be a tough one. 
Must be in somebody's vault somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon it's more likely just tied up in Wright's hell because the problem was with Amicus, they had so many deals, if you like, <laughs> <laughs> in inverted commas, because they, they would, like, for instance, they would get the EC Comics rights yeah. and, you know, like do Vault of Horror and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. And they would they would be filming it and then Milton Sabotsky, who was one of the producers, would talk, talk to his um, co-producer, Max, Max J. Rosenberg, over in the States. And Max would say, yeah, we've not actually got the rights for that yet. But I've got it on good authority that would be okay, all right? <laughs> Oh, it's like it's like eighties it's like eighties like rappers uh, sampling stuff and not having yes. to. Oh, <laughs> very much. Well, it's it's interesting. I have become so fascinated with the Amicus line because of your your podcast, and I I literally know nothing else about it than what you and Gabriella have told me <laughs> uh, in, in my ears. Um, and I gotta say, like. I had actually never heard of Amicus. I bring that up only as somebody who wrote a PhD dissertation on British film post-war. Oh, wow. yeah. um, my, my period ended a little bit before Amicus starts. I, I was aware of the Doctor Who films, which for people who like Doctor Who, there were two feature movies that don't really fit into the, <laughs> at the, all. the, the TV canon at all, starring <laughs> Peter Cushing, which is amazing. He's um, a damn he's fine a, doctor. He's a wonderful doctor yeah. <laughs> and it's bright and colorful and it's the Dalek stories. They're great. Um, but, but who aficionados do not like them for the most part. No, nope. very and much. I've heard a couple upon. of the names. I've heard a couple of the names like the beast must die over the years. Um, but there is such an interesting eclectic mix of, of films that they're doing. Um, can you, can you say more about like, the types of films that Amicus is putting out. Amicus were very profit-driven and very trend-driven. In fact, the first two films they did were two jazz rock films, if you like. They were just um, jukebox films, Mm. is the best way I've uh, described them. There was Ring Ding Rhythm, and then there was... Oh, what was the other one? Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, terrible. <laughs> um, but they were just pop films, and it was just because they could get hold of the rights to get these musicians on, and they were sort of doing jazz music, but like really bad Dixieland jazz music in the early 60s when the Beatles had already broken. You know, you've got the Beatles, the Stones, and what have you, and they were just completely out of step by about five years. So... He's got Kenny Ball and his jazz men playing, and you're thinking, really, the Temperance Seven? <laughs> okay, <laughs> this is uh, unusual. So anyway, oh. they were always one to try and cash in, and they struck gold with Doctor Terror's House of Horrors in 1965. That was their real breakthrough, and it was because, uh, again, they're trying to do everything on the cheap. They decided to do. An anthology series, an anthology film, because mm-hmm. it was cheaper for the actors. They could get the actors in, the big names in, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, what have you, and they'd do a day's work. So they would be paid for that day. And the 
uh, of course, outside on the cinema, you've got Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, on the posters, big and bold, for a day's work. That's 50 quid. Cheers. <laughs> and Cushing and Lee, I mean, they, they had no, it seems, they had no ego about what they do. They love to be in movies. They're yeah. in hundreds of movies. I was thinking about it today, actually. Christopher Lee, he's in Star Wars. He's in The Lord of the Rings. He's in the James Bond franchise. <laughs> Is anybody in more kind of iconic fan film series than Christopher Lee. I can't imagine that. No. I, I mean, he's even been in Lord of the Rings, isn't he? so yeah. I, I think he's been in every major franchise, hasn't he? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Apart from perhaps Harry Potter. Was he in that? I don't know. Oh. Maybe it was the ghost of Christopher Lee. <laughs> <laughs> Probably did a voiceover. <laughs> His spirit's in there. His spirit's yeah. in there. Amicus is able to bring those guys in who were probably better known for their their work in the hammer horror series yeah. and able to capitalize on that name it's really interesting that overall um though profit driven they're not able to like make s films that like kind of become classics um, true yeah see yeah it's it's a strange one because they were always importing talent from hammer you know well not importing, stealing, borrowing <laughs> for a couple of days here and there, you know. Um, they would always end up with a lot of people getting a, a very distorted view of what Amicus was, you know, because a lot of people think that ha The House That Dripped Blood, for instance, is a Hammer movie, when in fact it's an Amicus one. Um, they did do a TV series later on called Hammer House of Horror, and they had the house that bled to death in there. So mm. that caused more confusion for everybody else. But um, yeah, so Amicus has always been that sort of also run. Um, and <laughs> Poor it's... guys, they get lumped in with the Hammer films. <laughs> like... Yeah, they did have some good talent. You know, they borrowed a lot of a decent talent. Freddie Francis, for instance, he did quite mm -hmm. a lot. Um, the only director that they didn't take was Terence Fisher. And that was because he directed The Curse of Frankenstein, mm -hmm. which Milton Subotsky really rankled with Hammer for that, there because he did the original story treatment for Reven uh, The Curse of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. And, of course, when they released it as a, a completely different thing and Jimmy Sangster was in and they'd been kicked out and told to go and do their own thing, of course... They smarted for that for for years. There was always bad blood between Amicus and Hammer forever since. One of the things that Hammer did, did so well was reimagine the Universal films. Um, yeah. And it, it feels like Amicus, from what I can tell, from what I've watched and what you guys have talked about, never quite manages to find the, their specific niche. Hammer does hmm. more than that. Um, I, they do to me, one of my favorite versions of Hound of the Baskervilles. I love yes. the Baskervilles. Mm. Um, they're also able to, you know, they, they, they do, um, they do Quatermass. Um, they do, they do a few other things, but they kind of anchor everything around Dracula, Frankenstein, the mummy, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> more yeah, kind of, um, but Amicus never seems to get into a, a groove that way. True. Yeah. Yeah, um, there, I think it was because of the Scott, Scattershot approach to a lot of stuff 
you know, they would see what was working. Like they released a film called Danger in 1967, which is a spy thriller starring Richard Johnson. And is it, is it a thriller? (laughs) (laughs) Again, in inverted commas. Mm, No, it's it's a spy film (laughs) trying to cash in on the spy genre that was actually exploding at the time like the james bond the in light mm-hmm. flint the rock hudson one which i forgot the name of anyway um they were trying to cash in on that and what they tried to produce was the spy that came in from the cold instead oh. and it was just oh what a whole <laughs> awful mi- again misstepping all the time they're always yeah. slightly out of sync so every now and again when the portmanteaus do hit they hit hard and they really do make a, a big profit. Mm. Um, and one of the things they get around as well is by producing everything in present day. I'll, that's what's so different about Amicus and Hammer is mm. that Hammer do a lot of amazing period stuff. Yes. Amicus have tried it once, maybe twice. The once was, um, and the screaming stop, and now the screaming starts. Yeah, mm-hmm. Ian Ogilvy. Um, and that ran horribly over budget and over time because they didn't take into account that they would need all these extra sets and props and stuff. <laughs> Costumes? Who knew? <laughs> Who would have figured? <laughs> you can't just turn up in your duffel coat and pretend you're it, in the 16th century. It's it's England. Everything looks old. Come on. <laughs> Well, and even even Hammer's uh, contemporary stuff, some of the later Dracula film, like it looks at it looks period, like it just, yes, it just yeah. does. It's it's there's an attention to the artist, like the visual style that yeah. that Hammer has and does really well. That in the limited Amicus films I've seen, not always so much. <laughs> no, um, with the exception of Doctor Who, which again, I I I am amazed that those films aren't more well-regarded because they're so bright and so colorful. And as, like, as you guys say in the, the episode on it, nobody'd seen Dr. Who in color at this point. The, the, exactly. Yeah. The Hartnell stuff was in black and white. I mean, the Patrick Troughton stuff is in black and white as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so to have this bright, beautiful color film telling one of the, the iconic doctor stories just, I, 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 it Granted. amazes me that it's not better. Granted, when you're in the Dalek control room, it looks like you're living inside of a prawn because it's yeah. a lovely pink. <laughs> but it's, yeah. it's very 60s color. Very. Uh, <laughs> very 60s color. But uh, for a long time, they were rerun on TV. And for a long time, that's what everybody thought of as the Doctor because you you were more likely to see those than you were to see the new series, you know, because... It was never replayed. You know, there, there wasn't constant repeats. Well, and there's still, there, there's huge gaps in the library from the oh, early yeah. days. Yeah. Huge gaps. Um, a lot destroyed. A significant part of, portion of the second Doctor's stories are, are <sighs> gone. Um, upsetting. So upsetting. So upsetting. Mm. Oh, B- BBC. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, you've mentioned Pormanto films. Um, yes. Which Amicus... I mean, if if they do one thing pretty well, it's it's Parmento films, uh, and, and as you say, like there are economic reasons for doing them, uh, yep. but there's also like this interesting 
history of portmanteau films in the British horror body of work. And I, I'm curious, how influential do you think Dead of Night is on <laughs> British film, British horror film in general? I think it's probably got more echoes than people realize. Um, you know, even to this day, what, 2017, there was um, Ghost Stories, which mm -hmm. is Jeremy Dyson, Mark Gatiss, and um, damn, Andy Nyman, their, uh, their film. And wow, that is just so many echoes of um, Dead of Night in there. You know, it's so obviously, but even down to having a decent wraparound story that ties it all together, you know, that is actually part of the stories. Um, yeah, I reckon there's a, lot, there's a lot of things there, like with Dead of Night, you've got the ventriloquist dummy, for instance, that was never a thing before then. It was always just seen as a music hall entertainment. It was something for children. A Punch and Judy show never looked sinister, you know, and suddenly, after this, you've got a ventriloquist dummy, and... Oh, my good God. <laughs> it just terrifies you to this day. There's images. There's one image where the, the dummy is actually moving of its own volition. Mm -hmm. And it's just <laughs> ingrained. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's an incredible sequence. Um, that, that, whole, that whole story is just like, that's my favorite of, of them, uh, of all of the stories. And there's something you're right about the the dummy, about the the, the face that doesn't move, the occasional movement that mm. you know that you just catch a glimpse of or whatever. But then, I mean, you have Anthony Hopkins in Magic. Uh, there's yeah. a there's a there's a ventriloquist dummy in one episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Like it becomes a thing where, oh, these animated these dolls with life you know a life of their own are actually really terrifying. Um, it's the uncanny valley kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. And if, if people haven't seen Dead of Night, they really should go to their way to see it. It's an Ealing film from 1945. Yep. Um, Ealing never makes another one. No. They have their they have their best people on it. I mean, the 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 directors of of that film, Basil Cavalcante, Cavalcante uh, Harmer, like the Crichton. best. Oh, the <laughs> yeah. best directors they have yeah. are on this film, uh, and they never they never try it again, and yet. I think you're right. Like there's this ripple through not just the portmanteau, but also the style and, and, you know, the, there's humor with the, with the, with the horror, uh, the episode with, um, it's, they're not charters and Caldecott in the, in the, in the film, <laughs> yeah. but they're essentially it is Charles, and Caldecott. Charles and Caldecott. <laughs> it yeah. totally is. It totally is. And that's kind of goofy, but I mean, it's, it's a palate cleanser right before you go to the big story. It's, it, it's just such an important film. Well, you see an echo of this kind of construction in the Twilight Zone movie of the 80s. Mm -hmm. They do yeah. a similar thing in that where you get Kick in the Can, um, which is a really nice sort of easygoing Steven Spielberg directed segment just before some abject horror. You know, <laughs> it's perfect and it works every time. Yep. You know, yeah. sort of build yourself up. Bring it down a little. It's, it's like <laughs> making the mixtape. <laughs> it's exactly like making the mixtape. Of the, of the amicus things you've seen now, uh, both you know for the podcast and stuff before, like what stands out to you as stuff you're like, that's actually that's good. Like I'd recommend that to somebody. 
Ooh. I know you do not recommend the spy movie. <laughs> you did, you <laughs> guys did not, not like no. that. You did not oh like my. that. <laughs> I mean, we tried our best as well. Uh, to be honest, we, you know, it was really tough because we wanted to make sure that we were being fa- fair about it because it was still people's work in there. You know, yeah, no, you, you guys you can do. Yeah, you you guys do not eviscerate the films um, at all. You're very respectful, but mm. you also like this did not work uh, (laughs) yep and i can't even imagine (laughs) (laughs) i can't even imagine the thought process behind like spies they're really big now so let's make the most boring low (laughs) rent spy movie possible when when james bond (laughs) when when a volcano is a setting for a james bond film (laughs) let's set it in a room (laughs) and you've got this guy plotting his route down the ave 23 uh is is just a million miles away from James Bond and his volcano. Yes, that's exactly like going to Jamaica. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, which what, which films have stuck out to you as like oh. actually kind of like I, either I mean not great films, but like f- films that hit you on a on a on a fun level. Like I, I really like this film. Guilty I'd pleasure. Probably, probably, Asylum is probably the one that hits best as far as the quality of the stories um it's a another portmanteau film unfortunately it's got probably the laziest wraparound but um it's worth it just for tiny robot herbert loms every time (laughs) all right (laughs) we don't get enough tiny robot herbert herbert loms no if you were recommending to somebody who has not seen Amicus film or, you know, let's go broader, even, even Mm. hammer British horror in general, three titles that you would give to people uh, or someone who really wanted to kind of get in and see, see what this was all about. Yeah. As a perfect introduction, I would go for different ends of the spectrum. I'd go for um, the Frankenstein movie I was talking about, Curse of Frankenstein from mm-hmm. 1957, I think. Mm-hmm. Might be wrong, might be 59. Um, then um, another one would be Blood, <laughs> Blood on Satan's Claw, the Tygon film from 1973. Again, <laughs> for, because there you've got your folk horror yeah. and... It, it kind of shows you a different aspect of what became British horror for a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, then straight down the middle, I would go for Dr. Terror's House of Horrors because that's just a good, fun assortment of a lot of horror tropes that became what they are, you know, like the disembodied hand, um, mm-hmm. the deal with death, voodoo. It's all there. <laughs> Do you have time for some quick back and forth question and answer stuff? Of course we have. All right. All right. Kev, you are trapped on a desert island and you can only have two Amicus films and two Hammer films. What are you bringing? Oh, right. Um, Let's see. I would go with Asylum, obviously, and Mm -hmm. probably Madhouse, which we've not talked about yet. But okay. I do like that. That's quite a good fun. Vincent Price in that is always fun. Vincent Price, uh, period, is fun. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Theater uh, of Blood is one of my favorite films. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is brilliant. That and then follow it up with Dr. Fibes as well. <laughs> mm, yes. yes. <laughs> Classic. 
Um, as far as Hammer, I would go with the aforementioned Hound of the Baskervilles. Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in that are fantastic. And yes. Um, And then another hammer that I've not seen much until recently was A Taste of Fear from mm, early 60s, 1961, I think ish. I'm terrible with my ears, but Mm. sometimes I pin them. But A Taste of Fear is a really interesting little movie where. They had to bill it as a horror, but they couldn't actually say anything about it. All the poster artwork, for instance, is just a, a woman screaming. Because it is such an involved plot, and there's so many twists and so many double takes that you really need to be involved with it, and you can't really show any trailers or give any spoilers it's a very much like psycho you know (laughs) you're in there don't talk about it afterwards (laughs) all right all right i'll have to check this out a taste of fear is a really good one yeah taste of fear is there something that people think you'd be a geek for but for whatever reason you could never get into teenage mutant ninja turtles fair enough (laughs) (laughs) just landed completely the wrong time for me I was already out clubbing by the time Turtle, <laughs> Turtles actually started anything. Frankly, clubbing is a lot more fun than, exactly, than, turtles, yeah. than Turtles. What is the geekiest thing you own? Ooh, um, possibly my Dinky Toys Aston Martin DB5 with Ooh. ejector seat and bulletproof shield and everything else. It's great. Wow. <laughs> that, that is impressive. I like it's, that. It's something that I longed for for years, and um, one year I opened my Christmas presents and my gran had bought me the Lotus Esprit, Mm. and I was, oh, great, thanks. And she says, you did want the James Bond car? I went, yeah, but not this one. (laughs) (laughs) Wrong one, gran, thanks. (laughs) Eventually, when I did buy my own house, they reissued it it for a limited time and i picked one up then so yeah even though i was growing up with a house yes (laughs) i I am not one to judge Uh, no (laughs) (laughs) all right last question who wins in a fist fight christopher lee or peter cushing right if ever you've seen seven golden vampires you'd know that peter cushing could take anybody down Peter Cushing at the time was into his 70s and he was athletic. He was really going for it. So, yeah, I would I would go with Peter Cushing as the out, outside bet. But Christopher Lee was a spy in the war, probably killed people with a knife. <laughs> yeah, probably killed people with his finger. Never mind anything else. It's Christopher Lee. It would be an amazing fight. <laughs> <A> wither- <laughs> he can kill people with a withering stare, let's face yes, it. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's that look oh yes thank you so much for your time kev this was fun you can hear more of kev on the film guff podcast and here lies amicus where can people find you on social media i'm at kevney that's at c-e-v-n-i and that's on um twitter i'm not bothered about facebook i'm not 12 year old um i'm on instagram (laughs) 
or or a 70 year old Uh, yes (laughs) uh i'm on instagram at kevney underscore moo and all right i'll link to those in the show notes thank you again for your time this has been a lot of fun it's been great thanks thank you for joining me on geek four you can follow the show on instagram and twitter at geek four pod or me on twitter at mw boyce If you listen on Apple Podcast, click the subscribe button and consider leaving a five-star review. Be sure to join us next time when we learn what someone else is a geek for.